ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Thursday, February the 15th. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. Thousands of Victorians are still without power after deadly storms tore down transmission towers and closed roads across the state earlier this week. Meanwhile, in the state's west, authorities are still assessing the number of buildings lost after fires swept through the township of Pomonal. Oliver Gordon reports. Emerald sits in the Dandenong Ranges, around an hour's drive from Melbourne. This part of town is known to locals as the Hills, and usually it's alive with the sounds of birdsong and bushland, but not today. It's enough for the fridge, the freezer, um, the uh, televisions, all the appliances, charging phones, etc. Emerald resident Gordon Powell is one of many in the area, powering his home with a diesel generator following this week's storms. The long-time local was in his garage getting supplies when the worst of the weather hit. I couldn't actually make it back to the house, so um, I stayed in the garage and then in about two or three minutes later, the huge tree has just collapsed onto the garage, um, crushed the garage, um, and as it came down, I went to cover my head and then uh, I reached my hands up and I... I grabbed hold of the beam. So we're talking about a matter of centimetres between uh, your head and, and the roof. Exactly, yeah, just a few centimetres. There are still tens of thousands of Victorian homes without power. The Australian energy market operator says in the next 24 to 36 hours, a significant number of homes can expect power to return. But some Victorians may have to wait weeks because of the damage fallen trees have done to roads and power lines. Debate about renewables and their reliability has sprung up following the outage. It's one Grattan Institute energy expert, Tony Wood, thinks is misguided. Whatever we have may be exposed to major weather events. At the start of this year, the Allen government banned gas in new homes in Victoria. Was it wise for the Victorian government to uh, ban what can be a backup source of energy uh, when these storms are going to become more frequent? There's a, there is some, in the short term, at least some uh, logic in that argument. But of course, we also know that Victoria is running out of gas and um, the potential for having shortages of gas over the next five years is real. So, you know, and as a fossil fuel. So putting uh, all of our eggs in that basket probably doesn't make a lot of sense either. The week's wild weather hasn't just led to a loss of power. In the Grampians, residents are waiting to learn how many homes have been lost as a result of fires that ripped through the region. Assessment teams are in the process of determining that. It fears the number could be in the dozens. Oliver Gordon reporting there. Tasmanians are heading to the polls next month with the economy a major consideration for voters. A new study claims half of the state's population is experiencing food insecurity, with some taking out loans or scrapping insurance to put food on the table. For a long time, Tasmania's been the nation's poorest state. As economic indicators start going backwards, there are concerns that living standards will slide. Alexandra Humphreys reports. You don't have to look hard to find people struggling to put food on the table. Here at the University of Tasmania's Sandy Bay campus, not far from the centre of Hobart, an estimated 42% of students are experiencing food insecurity. Either they're anxious about where their next meal will come from 
or going without. The Student Association has set up a food hub, offering students free food like bread, pantry staples and veggies. The association's president is Liam McLaren. In our first six months of operation, we served over 3,085 students. Oftentimes, students are almost working full-time jobs whilst doing studying full-time and trying to complete their degrees. It's not just students feeling the pinch. Postdoctoral researcher Amy Sievright has been monitoring food insecurity across Tasmania. It is really widespread. Um, so in our raw data, we had 39% of people experiencing food insecurity. And when we adjusted that to be more representative of the Tasmanian population, it jumped up to 50%. The research found people are making significant changes to get by, like scrapping their health and car insurance, strategies that can have long-lasting economic impacts. We had people buying things um, on credit, um, taking on loans. One in five people reported selling household goods. Some of Tasmania's economic metrics are going in a different direction to mainland states. House prices have been falling, so have rents. Dwelling approvals are down and there are fewer first home buyers entering the housing market. Significantly, population growth has slowed. At the same time, it's accelerated around the rest of the country. You'd think it might help with cost of living pressures, but what it shows is a struggling economy. Saul Eslake is an independent economist and a Tasmanian. We are again on the cusp of repeating the cycles that Tasmania went through in the 1990s when slower population growth led to slower economic growth as it has done over the last year or so, which in turn prompts more Tasmanians of working age to leave and go to the mainland. And that could lead to a vicious cycle. People's ability to afford the things they need and want to buy and to spend on themselves will continue to deteriorate relative to the rest of the country. Saul Leslake argues serious reforms are needed to education, health, local government and the state's tax system. Challenges a new government might find it hard to tackle without winning a clear majority and a mandate, an outcome seen as unlikely in Tasmania's state election. Between 2015 and 2020, the margin by which we were poorer than the rest of the country narrowed, but it's widened again over the last couple of years. Tasmania's election is set to be held on the 23rd of March. Alexandra Humphreys reporting. Queensland police and the state government are throwing everything in their toolkit at the problem of youth crime. With the state election scheduled for October, it's expected to be a major campaign issue. Legislation banning the sale of knives to minors was fast-tracked through Parliament yesterday, while Queensland police say they're making inroads on youth crime. But youth justice advocates say it's just optics, that it's about being seen to tackle the problem when they're not addressing the root causes. Rachel Mealy reports. Queensland police are keen to trumpet the success of Task Force Guardian, a specialist police squad cracking down on youth crime. They released a video to the media showing police in action arresting young offenders. So what that actually shows is our um, Task Force Guardian working with our local police in apprehending uh, serious repeat offenders, uh, our young youth. Um, and in the video you'll actually see um, them pulling over cars and engaging with young people and taking them into custody. Task Force Guardian was created by Queensland Police last year in response to a series of high-profile crimes committed by young offenders. It was recently deployed in Ipswich, west of Brisbane, where District Superintendent Kylie Riggs said 
says it had a big impact. During that deployment, we actually had um, some pleasing results with 21 offenders arrested on over 112 charges. Task Force Guardian come into our district uh, when, when they're required and what they do for us is they actually bolster our front line to make sure that we can appropriately respond to youth crime. Overall crime rates have declined in Queensland over time but the crimes committed by repeat offenders has increased and so too has the severity of their offences. With a state election looming later this year, the state government wants to be seen to be on the front foot. It's fast-tracked a law banning knife sales to minors through Parliament. And the Premier, Stephen Miles, says he'll consider further powers that police have asked for, such as expanded criteria for GPS ankle monitoring of alleged offenders who are out on bail. In considering these measures, it's really important that we don't have a knee-jerk reaction. Dr Nadine Connell is an associate professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Griffith University. She says new laws are unlikely to have an impact on the problem. The ways to reduce that type of behaviour go beyond the enactment of more legislation. It requires community support, rehabilitative support educational support and family support. Tom Alsop is the chief executive of the youth advocacy body Peak Care. He believes there are between 80 and 90 children currently in Queensland watch houses. We're really concerned about the increasing number of young people and the continued increase in the number of young people who are spending extended periods of time in watch houses across the state. Everyone agrees that watch houses are not the appropriate place for the long-term detention of a young person and they are there because our detention centres are full. Tom Alsop, the Chief Executive of Peak Care, ending Rachel Mealy's report. The man once banned from entering Australia due to alleged human rights abuses has been elected to lead Indonesia, according to preliminary results. Prabowo Subianto sealed the presidency in one round of voting with a bigger-than-expected margin, taking about 58% of the vote in a three-way race. Despite Mr Prabowo's chequered history, he's pledging not to shake things up. Here's Indonesia correspondent Bill Bertels. After 15 years of trying, Prabowo Subianto took the stage in Jakarta with the prize he's long sought, victory in a presidential election. We must not be arrogant. We must not be proud. We must be humble. This victory must be a victory for all Indonesian people. It wasn't close. For months, polls suggested he may just get the outright majority needed to avoid a runoff. But quick count tallies from around the country have him closer to 60%. Kita harus tetap tunggu. We must continue to wait for the official results from the Election Commission. But we are sure that Indonesian democracy is running well. Way back in second place, the former governor of Jakarta, Anis Bezweden, who promised the biggest departure from the decade-long policies of incumbent Joko Widodo. But Mr Widodo remains hugely popular. And though he has to stand down later this year for term limits, he'll hardly exit the political stage. His son, Gibran Rakabuming Raka, has just been elected Indonesia's next vice president to serve under Prabowo Subianto. Many are glad the outgoing leader's influence will linger. I don't need a change. I need to continue. So I hope all the people in Indonesia can support Prabowo and Gibran. 
we hope that Pak Prabowo and Gibran will uh, bring Indonesia to number one in Asia and be the best country in Asia, especially. Accused of egregious human rights abuses from his younger military days, including fatal kidnappings of democracy activists, which he denies, Prabowo, as he's known, has pulled off the ultimate comeback. Firstly, as a perennial political candidate, then as defence minister under his rival Joko Widodo, and now, finally, president. Analyst Ross Tapsell from the Australian National University is in Jakarta and says a Prabowo presidency could throw up some surprises. Prabowo brings much uncertainty. In previous elections, he's run as a rabble-rousing nationalist populist. Um, he's been a supporter of hardline Islamic groups. So there is a sense of unpredictability and volatility here. And he says a weakening of democratic institutions under Joko Widodo's leadership will likely continue. Prabowo is not known as a democratic reformer. And it seems that Indonesia's democratic backsliding is set to continue. The official results could take weeks to certify and Prabowo Subianto wouldn't be sworn in until October. This is Bill Bertels in Jakarta reporting for AM. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and his Cabinet have sent a powerful message to the United States and the United Kingdom, voting in favour of a motion to allow WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to return to Australia. Mr Assange's supporters have welcomed the result. The vote's timing is important. It's come ahead of a crucial court hearing in London next week to consider a final appeal against an extradition order to the US where he faces espionage charges. Here's political reporter Tom Lowry. It's been more than a decade since Julian Assange entered the Ecuadorian embassy in London, fearing extradition to Sweden. He spent the past five years in London's Belmarsh prison and is now facing the very real possibility of being extradited to the United States, with a critical court date next week. Now Australia's federal parliament has taken a view that this case has gone on too long. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie. There are people that loathe the man. There are people who worship the man. But I tell you what, no matter which end of that spectrum you are uh, positioned, just about everyone agrees this has gone on too long, that it must be brought to an end. The US is seeking Mr Assange's extradition to face 17 charges of espionage and one of computer misuse over the publication of thousands of military and diplomatic documents in 2010. He could face up to 175 years in prison. Next week's hearing in the UK's High Court of Justice will determine if he can appeal the extradition or not. Yesterday, the lower house voted in support of a motion from Mr Wilkie, effectively calling on the governments of the UK and USA to bring the matter to an end and allowed Julian Assange to return to Australia. Here's Andrew Wilkie again. It sends a very powerful signal to Washington that Australia stands as one saying that this matter has gone on long enough, that regardless of what you might think of Mr Assange, justice is not being served in this case now. Labor, Greens and most crossbench MPs supported the motion, while coalition MPs voted against it. Both the Prime Minister and opposition leader have previously called for the matter to come to an end. One Liberal MP, Bridget Archer, crossed the floor after explaining her stance to the House. Even if Mr Assange were guilty of a crime, which I'm not sure is true, and there were due punishment, hasn't he already served that punishment? 
Julian Assange's brother, Gabriel Shipton, is in Canberra and will next week travel to London for the court hearings. He says the vote in Parliament was an important moment at a critical time. It is the first time the Prime Minister has voted for, for, to call on the UK and the US to um, bring this to an end and, and let Julian come home. There's never been a solution put forward um, like that. Anthony Albanese raised the matter of Julian Assange in a meeting with US President Joe Biden last year, and Attorney General Mark Dreyfus did the same with his US counterpart earlier this month. Gabriel Shipton believes this vote will give Australian figures more weight as they push the case abroad. They can now turn around and say, look, you know, it's not just me. Uh, as the Prime Minister, you know, we've got the support uh, of the Parliament on this. Julian Assange's brother Gabriel Shipton ending that report from Tom Lowry. Opposition politicians in Solomon Islands are vowing to make public or even scrap a deeply contentious security pact with China if they manage to oust Prime Minister Manasa Sogavare when the Pacific Island nation holds an election in April. But in unveiling the election platform for his political coalition, Mr Sogavare is promising to further consolidate ties with Beijing under a look north foreign policy. Here's foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts. In Solomon Islands, campaign rallies echo with song and with prayer, with even political manifestos receiving a blessing. Thank you for the many blessings. We thank you for the words, the message. That... But opposition figure Matthew Wale is striking a more combative tone. We have an economy where Solomon Islanders are increasingly marginalised we have an economy that takes the natural resources from Solomon Islanders to make foreigners rich. Mr Wale and his coalition partners are trying to remove Manasseh Sogavare, the country's dominant political figure. Mr Sogavare has forged close ties with China, signing a deeply contentious security pact with Beijing, which has alarmed Australia. But Mr Wale and his partners say Mr Sogavare has neglected critical health and education services while allowing foreign logging companies to keep on plundering forests in Solomon Islands. We have a government that is not controlled by Solomon Islanders. It is a government made up of Solomon Islanders, all right, but it is not controlled by Solomon Islanders. A government that receives money to make sure that the status quo continues. Manasseh Sogavare sees it differently. He's spruiking the massive investments China's made into Solomon Islands, including mobile towers, new roads and a huge stadium for last year's Pacific Games. Despite the challenges by the COVID-19 pandemic and the violent campaigns that led to the carnage in, in Oniara, our party still delivered many transformative outcomes. Mr Wale has accused Mr Sogavare of kissing China's feet and is promising to make the contentious security pact with China public. We need to be talking on our protecting and advancing our own national interests not co-towing and not bowing down like beggars with no respect. But unlike some other opposition figures, he's not committing to dumping the pact. And in the end, his position may not matter much. While politics in Solomon Islands is famously quicksilver, Dr Graham Smith from the Australian National University says Mr Sogavare could well secure an unprecedented second consecutive term. 
as far as I'm aware, he would be the first um, man to manage that in the Solomon Islands um, because these coalitions are immensely unpredictable and shifting. It is possible, um, if not likely, that he will be the first to do so because he has a war chest behind him that I think his um, predecessors did not have. A milestone which would be very unlikely to be celebrated in Canberra. Stephen Jedgett's reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. For a while, Israel declared the Gaza city of Rafah a safe zone. More than a million people flocked there. But it's now under attack. Today, reporter Nicole Johnston on the growing international calls for Israel to pull back and what she saw during a rare trip inside Gaza. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.